Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of The Moments That Made Me, the weekend podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Hello and welcome to The Moments That Made Me, the podcast that asks people about the key moments, good and bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives. The moments that made them. I'm your host, Vicky May, and this week I chatted to Hugh Wallace as he returns to our screens for Home of the Year. He talks about his dyslexia diagnosis at 17 and the teacher who saved his life, giving up alcohol and the impact of his father's drinking on his childhood, and how he met the love of his life 34 years ago in the George. Plus, he tells us how he got to dance with Freddie Mercury in Studio 54's heyday. Enjoy. Hugh, thank you for joining us today. So by the time this goes out, uh, or the first episode of Home of the Year will have been on air. So it's your seventh season, I think. It is, and yeah. am I right in thinking seventh you've seen... Seventh season, isn't that amazing? Incredible. And you've seen 150 homes More as part of the series. More than 150 homes. Really? Yeah. And every time the door opens, I just love it. Because I get quite excited by the show and looking into people's homes and mooching around. That's what I wanted to ask you, the success of it. Do you think it's because at heart all we want to do is snoop inside, look behind chairs, see under cushions, you know, see what's going on in other people's homes? Is that fascination to you? Yeah, and I think we want to be inspired and we want to be stimulated and we don't want to be afraid. I think what the show really is about is how far you can push out your ideas and your design ideas and your creativity. And to be brave, isn't it? Yeah, and your individuality. So it's, it's just a great show and I love it. And I love the fact that I know nothing when I arrive. The judges know nothing. And so, you know, you don't have to prep. You go on site, do your work and finish. Can I ask you as well, because it's a very strange time. So we're using our homes, we're using our houses. Well, my house right now is certainly, it's a, it's a classroom. It's also an office. And then at certain points of the day, like in the evenings, it suddenly turns into, into my home. What advice would you give people to try and make those distinctions? It's, it's difficult, especially when you can only travel 5K beyond, beyond your is, front door yeah. as well. Well, I think the, we, we actually, one of our staff members had to stop working because she found it just too much because their kids are at home, her husband's at home. He, he also is busy with a pressure job. 
They've taken over the living room as his office. She's working upstairs in one of the bedrooms and the kids are in the kitchen uh, doing their home study. So, and, and there's an awful lot of pressure on people at the moment. So if you have a back garden, you might think about one of those little pod offices. And they're ten to 12,000. <clears throat> but, you know, home, home, working from home will, be, will not disappear in the future. But I believe, you know, you might do two days at home and three days in the office. You think it's going to be a long-term change to you, even after all this? It is, yeah. It is, yeah. And because I think there's a whole... All, all of a sudden, people have gained... God, they must have gained um, 10 hours in the week. By not having to get in the Saving car. the commuting. Yeah. 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 And, and that's huge. But what people need to do is, before you go to work, go out, whether it's rail, hay, or snow, and walk around the block, buy a coffee, which is what you used to do. And ideally, you know, change a bedroom by having a wall bed. So you make it into an office. And then in the evening, you can pull down the bed. But... It is about not using the kitchen table because there's a whole... You have to be able to switch off. You have, yeah, and you have to get away. And, you know, you need to define the day because I think a lot of people end up working at six and seven o'clock and and then they're, you know, they're having the dinner on the same table. and it, As the laptop. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's it's no nice. break. No and you do it. I saw this morning when we first came on here on Zoom, I could see you with your coffee cup in your hand. So you make a point of doing that, do you? Yes, I do, yeah. Getting out, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Practice I'm lucky I go into the office because there's nobody in the office. Yes. So yes. I'm, I'm happy that I can get out of the house and I have to do printing and stuff like that. So I need to get into the office of large drawings. But uh, I think for, for the vast majority of people working from home, it's... It, it's just bloody difficult. It is. Well, listen, the focus of this podcast is the moments that made me. And you have picked three defining moments in your life that you are happy to talk to us about. And the first one is um, when you were diagnosed with dyslexia when you were 17. Yeah. And two things struck me. First is that you were 17 when you were diagnosed. It was around the time of your leaving cert, if I'm right. It, it, I was actually 18 now that I think. 18. It, yes, because wow. it was my leaving cert. But how difficult, I mean, how was school for you all those years oh, before? Dreadful. It must have been horrendous. It was, I was just an idiot. I was the idiot in the school. I was, you know, there were 23 uh, students in my year. I came 21st or 22nd. Um, my language skills were appalling. And, and did you just switch off in school? Were you just unfocused? You weren't getting the, you know... No, well, I couldn't do it. No, I loved history and geography and chemistry and, and um, maths. And art, obviously, you know, uh, not obviously, but I loved art. And, you know, and so when, when it was at Easter that, that um, Greg, Greg Collins turned around and said, yeah, I think, I think we need to go and get you. He was you. your teacher. Yeah, my English teacher. He said, I think we need to get you tested, you know, for dyslexia. This is the Easter before your yeah, leaving cert? Yeah. You're kidding me. No. Wow. Yeah. That one man pretty much changed the rest of your life, didn't he? He did, yeah. Because that's how I got... Otherwise, I would have got, didn't, wouldn't have gone into Bolton Street. I wouldn't have done architecture. My dad had organised me to become a cadet in the army. 
which would be a bit far fetched. But anyway, um, the army. <laughs> oh my gosh. Where could you have been, Mike, if it wasn't for Greg? <laughs> <laughs> and so I did my leaving search, a lot of it orally. Um, except for, mat, you know, maths and art and, and, and anything like that. But I was a very, very lucky man. You know, I didn't, I got a no grade in Irish because it was complicated enough to get a, a pass in English. Um, and that, that allowed me to go to college. And this teacher, do you still see him? Do you, no, he's do you dead. Reach he's out? dead. Greg oh. is dead. But funny okay. enough, um, in, in, in a show we're doing, we're recording at the moment, um, My Bungalow Bliss, uh, his, his niece is on the show and uh, she talks about Greg and fond memories um, that that uh, he had for me. And, you know, that was an amazing, to think that all happened and that Greg, there was eight of us that year who, who were sort of uh, diagnosed with dyslexia and the Department of Education didn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, we were lucky enough that we were able to do, a, a, you know, a lot of the... the, the the uh, leaving orally just shows the power of education and the power you know the the, the change that one teacher can make yeah, in so, a student's life yeah, it's so incredible I ended up with, with uh, two A's uh, two B's and a C in those days <laughs> having never had a, an A, do B do you think it's C. different now but do you I, think, I think it's it different now different that the awareness now, is there it, people have the support now yeah well they do and they don't dyslexia is quite interesting because it manifests itself in different ways. So you can have have a, a a letter or a language issue, or you can have a numbers issue. Um, it comes in different forms. But interestingly, I think that there's still a stigma to it. You do, okay. Um, I don't care because I just tell everyone I'm dyslexic. Then that gets over anybody asking me to spell anything or or to write minutes. You know, when you're doing a site meeting and somebody says oh, can I copy your minutes? And you're going, hmm, you'll enjoy that because I don't know if what I can say? read it. <laughs> so you're very straight about it. You're very upfront. Oh, yeah. I just think it, it, it's much easier to be upfront about these things because the, it's... A, and that you breaks know, down it, the stigma. It's like, you know, I could have broken my leg is the way I look at it. It's, you know, just a quirk. But I think... Dyslexia is quite interesting because an awful lot of creative people are dyslexic. You know, some of the great designers, architects, uh, artists in the world, and we just use a different part of our brain. And, and interestingly, dyslexia is related to balance in, in some uh, way. And if you notice your child in, in early life has balance issues, they may well have dyslexia. And did you even know what dyslexia was when you got the diagnosis? Not at all. There was a complete yeah. innocence about it. Yeah. And look at you now. There you go. Home of the year. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and I do, you know, I do think that that it is important to discuss these things because, the, you know, there's no, there's no um, guilt or anything or shame with it. It is what it is. And you just get on with it. It is no different to a broken leg, as you say. No. It's the same thing. Green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic.
a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. The next moment, and I've heard you speak about this in, in recent weeks, and I've been quite blown away by how you talk about it, is um, your own relationship with alcohol and your father's relationship with alcohol as well. The moment you've called your moment giving up alcohol, that is very defining in your life. Would you be comfortable talking about your, your dad and his experiences with alcohol? Yeah, my, like my dad was a placid drinker. So, you know, there was no, um, he got grumpy and maybe a little bit verbally abusive. But it is, my background was, you know, I was an only child. And my mum deeply loved my dad. And um, again, back then, like my mother had no one to talk to, not even her siblings, because you wouldn't discuss that disease outside the home. Are we back to the Irish stigmas again? It's yeah. terrible, isn't it? Yeah. And and I believe today, you know, people hide it from their siblings, the either their issue with alcohol or somebody in the family and their issue with alcohol. It's a disease and we need to call it. I do think we need to move away from using the word alcoholic to problem drinker. Why is that, you? Because alcoholic is we imagine is that person on the street in those final, in in the latter um, sort of stage of the disease. About to enter rehab, yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of them don't. They die, you know. There are 1,200 people a year die from from alcohol, alcohol abuse. Um, And... It, it's more, I think if we use the word problem drinker, then it's a tangible thing. So you can say as, as the person receiving or being, you know, as I was as a child, I had a problem with my dad's drinking. It affected me and it affected my mum. And it particularly, I would say, affected my mother, who was, who, who like had to handle that all by herself. And amazingly, you know, he, he, due to an incident in the home with my mum where they had a row, he went and he got to the bottom of the barrel and signed himself in and never drank again. When I was 17, he never drank again. And my mum and dad had, had a loving relationship. And my dad was a, was a gentleman, like a just such a gentleman, such a loving, loving man. But unfortunately, he had a horrible disease. And that disease is out there today. And did it change your relationship with him after that? It did. Well, we never discussed it. Okay. Oh, here we go again. (laughs) So it was like my dad got better and I started to drink. And it runs in families. It might miss a generation. I believe that it's it's hereditary. That might be because of of living with it so it's normal i'm I'm not quite sure of that I'm, i but you know there is a definite correlation between is running in families and the impact um, and we still don't talk about it no, we, we don't we hide it we use it as a crutch like even during lockdown on social media everyone's yeah. joking about the glass of wine and yeah. It's okay to drink seven nights a week now, but it's all said in a very jesty way. Correct. It's and it, it isn't okay. It, it actually um, isn't all right. Because of the, and particularly during COVID, 
so there's a correlation between the increase in abuse at home and and um, both physical and mental abuse at home. And the numbers involved in here in, in this are just astronomical. You know, the, there are 200,000 children in Ireland affected by, by problem drinking. 200,000. And then they go on and they create barriers. No, but they create their own barriers. They have to, you know, do things to survive themselves mentally when they're kids. And they become adult children of problem drinkers. And the cycle continues. And they don't develop, you know, emotions, the ability to really have emotional relationships. And they have problem relationships. Because everything has been numbed out by alcohol, hasn't it? Numbed out, hidden, the door closed, locked. And and we don't discuss that. And we need to discuss it because it's got worse. It's got much worse during COVID. Um, it's, when it, did you break the cycle for yourself? Like, when did you, if you started drinking around 17, 18, when did you suddenly have that wake up to say this needs to stop? I was 52. Really? I went to the doctor at the bottom of the barrel and he said, you're an alcoholic. And I went, that's what's wrong. Wow. That's, that's my reaction. And the other reaction was I wasn't going to die. I was very relieved I wasn't going to die because now I knew I could stop it. Do, do, mm. I know that sounds a very bizarre thing to say. But you could control it. You knew what you were dealing with. I knew what it was now. Yeah. And I knew I could get help. And, I, now, and that's then the other issue is there's a total lack of help. And there's a total lack of services available for people who've made, who want to make that decision at that moment. Because the man on the shoulder is going, yeah, you're okay, don't drink today, don't drink. We won't drink now and we'll tell everyone we've stopped drinking. Talk to me about life and life at 53 versus life at 52 when you'd stopped drinking. What was uh, the difference? I was, I was large, overweight. I was, uh, I was paranoid. I was, you know, just a mess. I couldn't Probably function. quite down if you're oh, drinking I was a lot d- too. Depressed. depressed. Oh, yeah. totally depressed. 53 was sort of, I always, we, I, I did uh, counselling and, and went to uh, um, the Stanhope Centre for, for rehabilitation. Amazing, just amazing. Um, but, you know, I'd walk up the stairs up to the counsellor and go, now, what am I going to talk about today? And uh, it had all come out, you know, and it's quite interesting because you lock everything so far away. You lock the door on your your demons. And then you can be afraid because maybe you open the door and you go, I can't. A lot of people will open the door and not be able to deal with the demons and then struggle to try and close the good door and go, whew, that was close. I nearly got all that. I need to numb everything here again. Yeah. So it is a journey. It's a fab, you know, it, I love it. I was very lucky, as I said, I had a fabulous counsellor. I went in and I met my counsellor the first time because they interview you to see if they're the right, you know, if, if you have the right connection or they feel they can assist you. Uh, so I said, well, we'll be all, uh, so it was on for an hour. And I said, how, how long will this take? 
you know, thought that was sort of... And I said, I suppose it'd be six or eight weeks. And she said, ah, no, she's a good three years in this. So what happened then? You were doing really well. And then during lockdown, the little man on your shoulder started talking to you, yeah? And yeah, they, encouraged yeah, you to... Yeah, he said, yeah, it's all right to have a drink and you deserve it and whatever. Was that the beginning of lockdown or at what point? Well, it was the first, it was this time, or sorry, March of last year. And, you know, it's so easy. It is so easy. And I was very lucky. I grabbed myself and said, well, no, we'll stop doing that. That's dreadful. Um, so it was just one evening of a... Well, no, I'd have to say there were a couple of incidents up to that. But I'd always... Uh, I'd, I'd control, you know, I'd said, Jesus, that was fucking stupid. And I didn't, I think one of the things is people do slip and you can't um, bash yourself over a slip. You have to say, well, that was a slip and you need to talk to people. You need to say to people around you, you know, I did slip. Because the whole thing about alcoholism is deviousness and lies, subterfuge, um, control. And so, you know, I'm very lucky with Martin. Um, I can say, you know, and he doesn't give out to me, but he just says, you know, we're on a journey. And that's what people need. It is a journey. that support. But equally, you know, one of the things that's very important for the person who is living with the problem drinker, either the family or everything else, is they become consumed with, with the problem. And... To a certain extent, the drinker will blame them. And the drinker is manipulative enough to actually make them believe that they are the problem. And so they, they, the impact to them is, is equal, if not worse, than the impact to the problem drinker. And they live with that. And the num- they so, need the support and, as well. Yeah, and they don't have support mm. because they're there isn't enough support out there to 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 deal with with their problems so they end up in a hospital with anxiety with 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 depression because this is relentless it's daily it's it's every moment of the day you don't know what mood the alcoholic is in the problem drinker is in is there a row now or is it coming later and you know the the most important thing for the 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 concerned person, the person living with the problem drinker, is that they have to detach themselves. That doesn't mean they don't love them, but they have to detach themselves and and you go on their own journey, saying, "Well, you know, the alcoholic or the problem drinker is responsible for themselves, and I have to be responsible for me and my life." Otherwise, I'll go, I'll go demented and mad. You've mentioned Martin there, um, who is also the, um, the third moment that made you. Um, so he's obviously been a huge... Meeting him was, is a, was a key point in your life. Um, yeah, he's been a moment. huge Tell us more. <laughs> it, was, it was the 14th of February, Valentine's oh, Night. Shucks, How romantic is shucks that? meant to be. <laughs> And oh, where was it? In the George. Very good. Uh, on the staircase. 34 years ago, yeah? Yeah. That's a long time. Years. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And, Very um, long time. 
And our, yeah, it was, a, and then I was 30, Martin was 18. And uh, 18 and 14 days. But it didn't matter because we were illegal anyway. <laughs> true, true, my God, yeah. So, um, and that was an interesting start to the journey and it was one of friendship. And that was all for probably three months. And we just got on. And it was, it's been an amazing journey, you know, and, and watching the two of us change and grow up in different ways, which you do. And, you know, the ups and downs of a relationship. But underneath it all, he's my very best friend. And a huge source of support, it sounds, yes. from everything you've just described. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Huge source. And we, you know, and we don't, we don't, um, you know, scold one another. And we don't, you know, an awful lot of people go around blaming for this and the other. And we couldn't be bothered. You know, things happen. And they happen because of a moment in time or whatever the circumstance. But there's no point in you know, dwelling on that. You have to decide, do you like the person and love them? And do you, you know, are you happy and content? So I'd have to say, you know, we're very lucky. You know, the first lockdown, we had a great time uh, together because we just loved it. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was great to have time to go for walks, to go, you know, mooch, you know, and, and it was fabulous. And tell me how different it feels now with your relationship. You mentioned 34 years ago it was illegal. Yeah. And obviously enough of that has happened since then. We've yeah. had the referendums. And how does it feel for the well, two of you now? I, I like, think what did that, that mean for you? I think I'm very lucky that I lived in Ireland as a, as a gay person and not in, in the UK, funnily. Because in the UK, they're much more homophobic. In Ireland, nobody cared. It's, it was quite perverse, you know. Nobody cared. Because they, and it was, if anything, it was a bit of gossip. You know, you could be the only gay in the village. <laughs> and nobody'd know, but everybody knew. And um, I think from a creative point of view, it was fabulous. Because it was sort of like, oh, well, he's more creative because he's gay. So, like, in, in work, it was just great. Nobody cared. Then in the 90s, you became a must-have at a dinner party. So if, if, if people, because people were now talking about, you know, gays and, and were liberal and all that. So you'd be invited to dinner parties, um, heterosexual dinner parties to two gays uh, to show how liberal they are. You know, and I loved that. Martin and I loved that. And, and if you, I know that's a bit, a bit odd, but that was, in my view, my way of, of, of saying, you know, I am gay and I'm no different than you. Um, and there's, you and know, what about today? Has it changed again? Do you feel a difference oh, it's now? Oh, changed it, now. Nobody, yeah. Now, now yeah, you're, nobody bats an eyelid. Well, I think there's a double-edged sword to that. It's quite interesting because now we're homogenized. We're we're like, you know, we used to be the cream on the top of the milk, but now, unfortunately, the gays have got homogenized. You're and losing to, out in the dinner party invitations, are you? No, <laughs> I tell you what it is: is all of a sudden you have to conform. Mm, okay. And so I think that, that in an odd way, uh, gay culture has lost an edge of rebellion and an edge of, of 
you know, uh, dissension or pushing boundaries, you know, socially. And, and I think that, I think we've lost that edge. And Are you watching It's a Sin? Did you watch yeah, the... Yeah, wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah that well, captures exactly I was, what you're describing, uh, can I, isn't it? Can I say in 82, I was in Studio 54 wow. in New York. And I actually had, was lucky enough to have a dance with Freddie Mercury. My gosh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that was an amazing, you know, so, but I'm saying that, that uh, fervor, that, um, you know, expression of liberalism in terms of or respect of sexuality, we don't need to discuss that today. And so I think that, that edginess, I just wonder, you know, if you look at all the great dance music, the fashion, that all was driven from the underground and from the gay, gay culture. And I just think that's that's lost. So in a funny way, there's a little element of of um, sort of being there too. yeah gone as well, you know. But what does Martin make of your amazing TV career? Well, again, you see, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't stopped drinking. Yeah. And I'm I'm a very lucky man that the TV camera likes me, and I have to tell you, I love it. And it shows. It shows. I just love it, and I. Yeah. I I think that the shows I, I particularly like because there are two things that are about creativity and people pushing their boundaries of, of um, you know, their boundaries of what they're used to in, in their houses. The people who do the great house restoration are extraordinary, my goodness. And you just look at them and their commitment and, you know, the stress on their relationship. And, and their love for, th- for their projects and their houses. And that's an amazing show. I just love it. And well, Hugh, uh, I have to say, I think you're going to keep us all sane every Tuesday night now ah. for the rest of this awful lockdown. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm, and I've, I'm, I've uh, seen the three of the shows. So I got a little preview and they're great fun. And having the new judges uh, changes the dynamics yeah. um, and what we talk about. And so that's terrific. And uh, they're feisty ladies. Well, we'll all be watching. Hugh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Not at all. I loved it. And thank you so much for asking me. Thanks to Hugh Wallace. Sound and editing by JJ Vernon. We'll see you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.